Miracy. And so our COO and I did what we called our Tim and Jennifer Grateful For You Tour. And we actually got t-shirts done up. It's like the Grateful Dead kind of theme stuff. And we put every office and the date on the back, like a tour shirt. And we went to all the offices over like six weeks and it was exhausting, but it was also exhilarating. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact clarifying their priorities, energizing their organizations, and building cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by introducing you to executives who lead with intention. These top business leaders exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the positional power they have comes with an equal measure of personal responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers and clients and their stakeholders, they also prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for their employees. We get to learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. With me today is Tim Lupinacci. Tim is the chairman and CEO of Baker Donaldson, one of the largest and longest operating law firms in the United States. I think 22 offices, That's right. That's right. Tim's practice of more than 32 years is focused on, let's see if I get this right, helping financial institutions solve complex issues through representation in loan workouts and insolvency. Not the cheeriest topics in the world. (laughs) And yet, I think a great test of leadership in many environments. So in addition to the board and executive positions, Tim also serves, I think, as the chair of the firm's diversity committee. Is that right? I I am a member of the diversity committee. On the committee. Okay. Tim earned his JD from Vanderbilt University Law School and lives currently in Birmingham, Alabama, although we were just chatting before, not a native Southerner, but we can get back to that if it's important. So welcome to the show, Tim. I'm so excited to talk with you about your leadership journey today, and thanks for joining us. Sharon, I'm so honored, and I've already learned a lot from listening to you, and so I'm excited to talk about leadership and everything. Super. So we'll start kind of on the easy front, which is you've been chairman and CEO at Baker Donaldson now for about four or five years. Four and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Four and a half. So just to help folks get to know you a little bit, can you just give us the bird's eye view of the leadership roles you've held that led up to this prominent position? Oh, sure. I guess within Baker Donaldson, I joined about 18 years ago. And within a couple of years, I became the office leader for our Birmingham office, which is about where I am, but in about 60 to 70 lawyers and another 50 staff business professionals. After doing that for five years, I ended up managing a practice group of bank lawyers, individuals who represented banks in a lot of different litigation aspects that led to my vision to create a whole financial services department, meaning that why don't we get everyone together that does work in this industry of the lawyers and the professionals so we can learn from each other and better serve our clients. So we built out the department and then I've served on the board as well. And then five years ago, our CEO, who had been in the role for 20 years, decided it was time to step down. So we had a long, laborious process. It's an internal position, but uh, I joke about my 50-page questionnaire and 13 hours of being grilled by some of my colleagues. But it was all worthwhile to get through the gauntlet to then be the right person to lead the firm forward. So that's some of the steps I've taken here at Baker Donaldson. And it sounds like the firm's done really well under your leadership, from what I could tell, not just financially, but also in terms of being a great place to work. I read recently that, let me get it right, 89% of employees at Baker Donaldson said it's a great place to work. And for those of you listening, just for comparison, the typical U.S.-based company's only 57%. So that's a big difference. 
Yeah, you hit the nail on the head because when I came in, we had had some financial plateauing of the organization and for a lot of different reasons. So we really did have to address that. But what drives me every morning and why I'm excited about this role is our people. And as I know you believe too, I mean, the only way we can turn things around financially and really have a lot of growth is if you've got your colleagues bought in with purpose, what you're trying to do, having emotional intelligence, really, you know, having everyone at the table as a valuable part of what we're doing. And so it has been very rewarding to turn the financial tide, but more important to me, it's been that we have been able to increase engagement. And that's something I've told the board I want to be measured on is our year over year, among three or four other things, engagement of our people. So, because you can't rest on your laurels, right? I got to get up into the 90%. And a lot of the things I love about these engagement surveys is the numbers are great, but you get a lot of great feedback in the comments. And that's what you have to act on. Yeah, that's really great. So that leads me to ask, I guess, maybe a tricky question. I don't know. What do you think the leadership team does tactically to cultivate this kind of culture? What are some of the things that you think maybe differentiate you all? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I know it has to start at the top and it really started with, we had a six month transition of me moving into the role. And I went on a road trip of all our offices and sat in conference rooms with everybody in the office and to get feedback and to ask questions about how we could do things better so that I wasn't just saying, I view everyone as a leader, which I do in their own realm and everything, but also want your feedback. I want to have that open dialogue. It's safe to bring this to me which took some time for people to build that trust because a lot of people didn't know me. But then being open about it and then actually listening, taking notes, and then acting on. Now, obviously, we couldn't act on everything and everything may not be in the best interest of the organization. But I think that started with the idea of making sure that we were listening and getting better every day and we could always get better. So I think that's one thing. And, and certainly, again, leading from the top, I try to do that with our executive team, all of our office leaders, practice leaders, try to really instill that through our training and through how we lead. And then it has to flow down. But then, of course, there's a lot of intentionality behind things like talking about engagement. How can we engage our colleagues regardless of title? How can we, particularly when you got into the remote area, I mean, how can we better do that? So some of it's intentionality, it's leadership from the top. And then, I mean, we certainly can unpack some other specific things tactically we've done, but that's just some high level ideas. That's great. And what are some of the specific principles? Do you have like a set of leadership principles that you try to follow or that you've cultivated over the years or evolved? Yeah, I mean, I know some of these are words that just get thrown around, but I really do try to lead as a servant leadership kind of mindset that I don't have all the answers. I always joke about I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I listen and I'm curious. So I think that's another thing. I'm trying to be curious. I'm trying to learn from others. And particularly outside the legal industry, I'm a big proponent of like, I'm reading a lot of stuff. That's why I like your podcast has been valuable because you have experts from other industries that I may not be able to apply all of that from these other industries, but I'm learning that, hey, this could work for me here. So I think trying to be humble, and I know that's another thing that gets thrown around, but I don't care about my title. I just want us to succeed as an organization. I want to instill purpose in what you're doing and, and to have you really want to be a part of this. So I would say those, you know, being curious, being honest admitting when I make mistakes, like I think I learn and then people that builds trust, right? And I think visionary, I know I'm throwing out a lot of terms, but I would say trying to have a vision, trying to be positive, honest, transparent, and just lead that way. So I think the people that I know that work in the legal industry, I think many of them would say, well, it's not a very forward thinking, modern field for leadership. And so I wonder if you could talk about what do you think is different about leading a legal organization? It's a very flat organization in the sense of 
most law firms are made up of partners or in our case, shareholders, because we're a professional corporation. And those 200, in our case, 250, 300 owners, I mean, they've got ownership in the firm. I mean, I can't say, hey, go do this. I can move everyone. Let's move together. So it's very much not that hierarchical type system. I mean, there's obviously reporting lines and there's things that happen. So some of that gets back to this whole idea about why you have to know your people and getting buy-in. So I think that's one thing that's different. One thing that's really shifted in the last decade, and one of the things we were probably a little bit slow to get in the mindset of, is that big law firms have become much more, it's a business. We're a $400 million organization. The top 50 law firms in the country are billion-dollar annual revenue. So when I was in the succession timeframe, I really was talking a lot about, we need to be thinking like a best run business, like our clients. It's a little bit of a nuance, but you know, the partnership, the handshake model, we'll take care of this, we'll take care of that. It really had to think about what's the return on investment on all we're doing and making sure that it's better serving the clients, right? And so there's a lot of that mindset shift, behavior shift that's been happening in the industry for probably a decade or more, maybe even longer. But for us, it's been really the last five years. And so it's been hard because it's changed, but it's also made us better in serving our clients. And so I think it is a different model than a lot of other industries, but it's very rewarding, but it has different challenges. I've got to get a lot of (laughs) buy-in. I was going to say a lot of attorneys are very, very bright and maybe not the smallest egos ever. Right. So I'm going to guess that that might pose some challenges in leading. It does. And it's funny because there's all those personality tests you can take. And if you put my stuff up against like the legal profession, I'm like in the bottom quadrant box of like, you should not be a lawyer for a career. I, I, I (laughs) I love my colleagues, but no, they are. I mean, and they're serving their clients at these highest levels. They're the brightest people in the world and they're very strategic. And so that's where what I've found, what I like to do is just get to know them, get to know the individual, what makes them tick, what do they need? How can I support them that I will listen to them? And you know that it's not just if we've got a policy or procedure that doesn't work for them, not just saying, well, no, that's just the way it's done to really try to understand, well, what's the why behind why that's causing you some challenges and then try to help them. And I think over time, it just builds that credibility with them. It's not easy, but I think they know that I'm trying to do their best interest and the best interest of the firm and take the next right step. I know one thing I talk about, let's just figure out the next right step. Churchill had something he called uh, dinner table diplomacy. The idea of like, he did so much work around the dinner table. Of course, he was smoking cigars and drinking bourbon. And I don't really do either one of those, but (laughs) those particular things. But just getting around the dinner table, I think you get to know people and know what really makes them tick apart from the drama of the day in the office. So when I go to an office to visit, I'm like scheduling breakfast, lunch, dinner with all kinds of different constituents of small groups just to try to do that. So it takes a lot of time, but I think it's been worth it. So how much time do you think in your day do you spend in what you would consider leadership activities, like leading the people? Yeah, I was almost 100%. I mean, there's parts of it where I've got to make sure I'm best leading myself and I've got some of my daily disciplines and all that, but I'm full-time out of practice of actual law. So really most of what I'm doing every day is leading our people or working on strategies or analyzing financials and what do we need to do? You know, all of that, I would still categorize in the idea of like, that's helping lead our people. Well, yeah, you got to do those things for leadership. That's not unlike a corporate leadership role in any way, but it sounds like you invest a lot of time in these listening tours, conversations. Yeah, it's been a big part of who we've been as a firm, even my predecessor, because we're 22 offices, like over 10 states. Part of the glue that holds it together is having the leaders getting around to the office at least once a year. And of course, as we've gotten bigger, because we've added some offices in the last couple of years, it just makes it more challenging. But like, you know, I'm going to Baltimore next week. I'll be in Atlanta the week after that. 
It's just things like that. Now we try to organize other meetings we're doing. Like we have four departments that we run the firm through. We're having a business unit meeting in Baltimore, but then I'll spend an extra day and go, I don't know what they call it, crack crabs. I'm supposed to have some crab leg meat or whatever. So, (laughs) but one thing after the pandemic, obviously we weren't going around and visiting our offices over that period of time. And so our COO and I did what we called our Tim and Jennifer Grateful for You tour. And we actually got t-shirts done up. It's like the Grateful Dead kind of theme stuff. And we put every office and the date on the back, like a tour shirt. And we went to all the offices over like six weeks and it was exhausting, but it was also exhilarating because it was in many instances, the first time people were seeing each other in 14 months. And, you know, we did a lot of different activities, but then we'd get on the road and drive to the next office. But that just is part of the fabric of who we are. And it's gotten people to trust us and to know that we really are interest in their best interests. And it sounds like kind of very down to earth as well. Like that's a pretty funny theme for a listening tour. And yet I imagine it really got a lot of people laughing and feeling like, oh, you're just regular people. So just thinking about the whole pandemic thing, what are you all doing about this return to work, return to the office, I should say, and how's that working out and what insights have you learned? Yeah, well, we have, as everyone's struggling through it, and of course, there's probably no exact right answer, right? But what's worked for us, we've been trying to be flexible. We've basically, at the high level, thinking about trying to encourage people to be in the office about 50% of the time. Different categories may be a little bit different, but that's the big picture thing. We try to coordinate certain days of the month where it's an everybody in the office. And those are the days we try to like, we do monthly, you know, office lunches or for doing attorney meetings. We try to coordinate that around that. We've certainly have access to a lot of obviously the remote stuff. We've tried to do some programming more remote so people can access it, you know, at their own convenience at home and everything like that. And then we try to do things like our leaders, our board getting around the offices, which will then bring people in. I know this summer I had asked all of our board members if they could fan out to all of our offices to really continue. We're in the second year of our Baker Vision strategic vision. (laughs) And I've said, well, everyone's heard me talk about this. Can you all go out? And one of you at least get to every office and do a presentation and while you're bought into this. And then when they get there, they're doing stuff in office. So we're really trying to be intentional about getting around, getting people in the office, but recognizing we need to be flexible. And there's some groups within the firm. I know I think our billing professionals that in the marketplace are, I mean, pretty much they can go anywhere and do it all remote. And so we recognize we need to be even more flexible because we want this best talent, but we don't want them to leave just because they could work from home somewhere else more often. So we're just trying to take it like that. (laughs) No, it makes a lot of sense. And I do think, I mean, what I'm discovering is different industries seem to have different requirements. And I was just looking at a research report this morning, and it makes perfect sense that among those organizations and professional services, legal, it's a lot easier to have some people work remotely than it is, for example, in a manufacturing or a distribution type of business where many of the employees just have to be there. And I think for the executives, they also like, what does an executive do all day? Talk to other people. So you might as well be in the office. And I do think it does drive that like senior team to want to be in more. I don't know if you're finding that. No, I totally agree with all of that. And I mean, it's interesting because the legal industry did very well during the pandemic because everyone could just convert to working remotely. And then, of course, our clients had these unknown problems and issues they had to navigate. And so we became more valuable and became more their trusted advisors. But we were able to pivot pretty easily compared to, as you said, manufacturers or retail or, you know, healthcare workers, the real important folks in the world. 
So you talked earlier about the joy and pride of having built the organization financially and also interpersonally. How do you know if it's worth the investment of time and resources and particularly executive attention to do those kinds of things, to invest in that kind of emotional intelligence or, you know, even a listening tour? How do you know? I guess having been a part of Baker Donaldson for, you know, 18 years, that sort of undercurrent of the EQ. I don't necessarily care as much about getting the title of a best place to work. I want to be a best place to work, right? That people want to come to. And I think we had always focused on that as part of our fabric. And so that was part of what drew me to Baker Donaldson. So I've seen it at the firm, but even my personal level, that the teams I've worked with, when you're really focused on those things, the building the team and working together and knowing like what everyone's dreams and ambitions are, and then really trying to help them accomplish that. In smaller teams, I saw that we outsized economic moves. We grew more trusted relationships with clients. It just made everyone work together really well. But for those who haven't done as much in it, it could seem probably daunting, like that's the soft stuff. And I think there's research out there that shows that it really does drive profit and drive revenue. There's certainly very high correlations between those kinds of efforts. So one of the things I like to do with guests is to get as personal as we can. And I heard you talk on a different show about Myers-Briggs as a frame that you would use to understand personality and personality differences. Was that, did I get that right? I have done that in the past. And then Patrick Lencioni has a new book that kind of goes into some of that. So, yeah. He does. He's been a fan for a long time. So I'm just wondering, what have you learned about yourself, your blind spots? Where did you stumble and have to recognize, oh, I never thought about that part of leading. What did you have to learn to get better? Yeah, well, I go through a lot of things since I mentioned the Lencioni material on working genius. The thing I liked about that so much is it was really trying to take some of those personality tests you can take, but put it into the workforce. And it was interesting. I had our executive team do it. And they have, he has, he comes out with basically six different sort of quadrants of where you may fall. And it talks about your working genius, where you get most fired up about, and then also your working frustrations. It's not necessarily a weakness. It's just, it frustrates you. And it was fascinating. We did this last fall. I'm the only one on my whole executive team of about eight people. I'm the only one that gets really fired up. I guess my genius of ideation and vision casting and all of that, where that is actually a frustration for most of my other executive teams. So like I'm coming up with ideas and I'm trying to do this and they're like, this is exhausting. Like I love to go brainstorm for six hours, you know, and like, let's conquer this. And they're like, that drains them. And I didn't fully know that. And then on the flip side, the calling through all the ideas to come up with really what will work and everything, that gets me frustrated, but they're all pretty talented in that. That's a genius for them to really have that insight into what could work and what doesn't work. So that was pretty wide opening. And then, of course, this was like perfect. Our chief of staff, who is sort of the closer, get things done. Her genius was right on that end of like, I'll come up with a vision. I'm ready to, con- but like after we get it going, I'm ready to go conquer the next mountain. She's like, no, Tim, we got to get this finished. <laughs> so Just learning all that, I realized, again, that I need the strengths of them to really cull through all these ideas, that not every idea is a good idea, which I kind of knew because I've made mistakes before, but also to help me finish it. And then it was helpful for them to realize that I do get jazzed and fired up about coming up with new ideas, but we also have to work together. Some of the things I've learned over the years is, as I mentioned, which is the flip side of the coin of getting all the feedback and hearing from people, at some point, I have to make the decision, act and execute, because you can just get into this funnel of just getting feedback and feedback and feedback. And so that's taken through some trial and error where probably getting too much feedback and then just taking the action. So I'm still continuing to learn in there. 
And then I think another thing that I've learned over the years is I do still, I mean, I guess I think a lot of leaders do, but I definitely do like that imposter syndrome. Like, are they going to figure out that I really don't know what I'm doing? And some of that borders on like, then you have to have some confidence, not overconfidence, not egotism, but like confidence that you're in this role. I'm talking about myself. I'm in the role. They trust me. I've gotten the feedback. I know this is the next right step. Confidence to execute. So those are some things I've really struggled with in the journey. That makes sense. And leaders are just people. Let's not get too caught up in projecting onto the leaders every bad experience we've ever had with an authority figure. And I do know that does sometimes happen. So when people have projected things like that onto you, how do you handle it? Well, you know, I think I just, again, I'm trying to listen and understand, recognize I've got my background as my journey has been my journey. Theirs is different. And then try to just understand where they're coming from. And at some point, I mean, I hate this phrase about agree to disagree. I don't ever even use it. But at some point, you just have to say, well, this is just what I believe. And I hear exactly what you're saying. And, you know, let's move forward. Well, and the curiosity you're describing, I think, goes a long way. A lot of times if people hear something, it can trigger some defensiveness. And if you're just a little bit curious or maybe a little more curious, it can offset some of that defensiveness. Oh, totally agree. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Trying to understand because like someone can come in pretty hot with an opinion, but then when you really start to understand it, then it's like, well, that isn't the big issue. It's something else that's underlying this that you still have to deal with, but it's a little bit different approach. So it's just not running to the defensiveness, which is, that's another thing that's taking time to learn, right? Because I like to internalize everything and somebody leaves the firm, it's my fault. And I'll take the blame if it's something I've done. But I mean, a lot of times it is really trying to learn and grow and be curious. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So here running this big law firm, multiple practices, multiple offices, is there some time that you've had to face some kind of moral dilemma or personal dilemma in your leadership that you can think of? Thankfully, I don't think anything in the moral sense that really has caused me to be challenged. But I think it's just because I'm so wired on building relationships with people and the people side of things. When we've had some high performers who continue to behave badly, say it that way. And in every instance, I had tried to work to build the relationship, the bridge to get them coaching, executive coaching or counseling and all of that. When it came time where it just realized they weren't stepping up and having to then go have that discussion about we really needed to part ways and to do it humanely and all of that, of course, let them go on their own terms. In most instances, if it hadn't been something egregiously bad behavior, that's just hard for me personally, because I built a friendship with the people But like even one of the more recent ones I had to do at the end of the meeting, it was a difficult meeting, but I mean, the individual hugged me. It was just kind of like, we're going to work through this, but it's because I had that relationship. But that kind of stuff is very hard for me personally to do that. So that's the type of thing that really I think of more are the hard things that's helping me grow as a leader, right? (laughs) Yeah. Whenever we are attuned to other people and their inner lives and our interpersonal relationships, we're going to feel that. And I guess what you're saying is it's just part of the job and we have to behave the way we would want others to behave with us. Right. Treat us with dignity and respect, have the conversation. But I'm not surprised that somebody would hug you after because when you listen and care and you work toward a common solution, I think people, in my experience, people do feel grateful. It's not what everybody expects or receives at work quite yet. Right. I think you're right, Sharon. It's interesting because this isn't the best situation for them either at that point. By the point that it's so, you know, it's like, go find your place where you can thrive because for whatever reason, it's just not working for you as much as it isn't for us. It's so hard because then I tend to be like, I give people too much the benefit of the doubt for too long. But then at some point you got to like trust the instinct that that's too much, right? 
I think that's a fine line for everybody to manage and you can uh, over index on either side. That's right. And when the individuals who aren't producing outcomes, then the other colleagues see that you're allowing them to not produce outcomes. And then they wonder, why am I working so hard? It does all work together. That is a great point, Tim. I think I read somewhere that your culture is defined by whatever you tolerate is what you get. Right. I thought that was just a very interesting framing for that. Yeah. I mean, I've heard it phrased like if you want to have A players leading your organization, but you're allowing the C players, however you define it, to just continue to hang around, you're never going to attract all the A players because they're going to see that. So I love how you said it. That's really true. So we know learning never stops and leadership learning never stops. So what's your current learning edge? What are you focused on these days? Well, we've been doing a lot of transformative change. And of course, I'd read a lot of stuff about change management, but that part of it is always something I'm trying to get better at. And then really, I've gone back to there's some really great resources out there about like CEO excellence. I think Carolyn Dewar has a book out and I'd read it before, but I'm going back through just to see how can I better lead our team leaders to then maybe better filter down our vision and the way we're trying to lead better. So it's really trying to refine around some of the edges. So that's certainly something I'm working on. And some of that, of course, includes decisiveness. I'm still working on that. That's good to hear. And how do you work on these things yourself? I read a lot, listen to podcasts, things like that. But I have a coach that I get with. I have a counselor that once every four to six weeks I get on the call with just to check in. He says I'm one of his easy patients because it tends to be around the edges, but it's something. And I talk about that around our firm because I want people to have an openness about mental health wellness as part of your whole being. And that is nothing to be shameful about, right? But those are a couple things that really uh, having those sort of safe spaces to talk about things have been very helpful. And then I'm, I alluded earlier about, I have like sort of my, really helps me to keep focused on my daily disciplines of like doing a little reading and exercise in the morning, getting good sleep, you know, uh, eating well, those things just help keep the energy going. So um, those are a lot of the different ways I keep trying to fuel myself. So those are just things I'm doing. One thing I heard you say was a line from a favorite movie that kind oh. of on a down day really gets you pumped. Do you... <laughs> Do you remember what you said? I do. Well, yes, (laughs) there's several because I do love movies. But the thing I think you're alluding to is that, you know, sometimes any leader, as much energy as you've got, like, I don't want to get out of bed today. And so I love the movie, All That Jazz from way back in the 70s. And Roy Scheider plays Bob Fosse, also like Bob Fosse. I mean, all the stuff he did and the choreography is so amazing, right? Well, in the movie, of course, Scheider playing the guy that's based on Fosse, you know, was a pretty hard living man. And, you know, and he was out all night partying, drinking, doing whatever else. And so every morning he would wake up and put Visine in his eyes, splash water on his face, close the mirror and say, it's showtime, folks. Like he's got to go get ready for. And so <laughs> I don't put Visine in my eyes and I may or may not splash water on my face, but I do say it. Sometimes I just have to tell myself it's showtime, you know, so. Yeah. When I work with executives, one of the things I like to describe to them is sometimes being the leader, you have to put on your CEO cloak, right? You just put it on and the rest of you, however you're doing, it's inside protected, but there's a uniform and it's how you show up and it's how you hold yourself and it's how you process your emotions, all that stuff. You just have to showtime it. So I thought that was pretty charming. Well, I love that idea of the cloak because you're right. I mean, we're in this position and we're not going to feel like it every day, but we do have to show up and we have to lead. And so, but you then also need the downtime to get the refuel. Maybe it can't be today, maybe it's not tomorrow, but then you've got to figure out the place because that's another thing I've learned. At some point, you just will push yourself way too far and then you're not good for anyone, not good for the organization, not good for yourself. So 
That's for sure. So, you know, we just finished sort of graduation season for a lot of recent grads. So if you could speak to yourself like back when you were, I don't know, leaving Vanderbilt, what's something that you know now that you wish you had known then that you would tell your younger self? I would tell myself to look at yourself as a leader from day one. I really think that was something I had to learn along the way that really owning my own career. I jokingly said I stumbled into law school because I really didn't know what I wanted to do and I don't have any lawyers in the family. So I really, it was all very transactional to me. But then I had a mentor who spoke into me about that he really saw leadership capability in me and that somebody speaking that into me really was the first time I thought about it and that led me on a lifelong journey. So I would probably tell myself, just think of yourself as a leader and have more confidence. I've always felt like I don't belong at Vanderbilt. I came from the small liberal arts school, I'm, you know, and all that stuff. So I really, I would have tell myself to just, again, not overconfidence, but just be confident in yourself. I think I, my, I had a parallel experience when I went to business school at Stanford. I'd grown up in North Carolina and uh, my family's full of doctors and nurses and nobody, I don't think I'd ever known a soul with an MBA. And here I ended up out at this big deal business school, having no idea what I was getting myself into and just having that same like, oh, my gosh, well, I am here. So I guess I might as well act like I belong here. Yeah, that's the feeling. That's the kind of feelings, emotions you're getting in there. And then you say, well, I, I can do this. I can succeed. So the title of this podcast is To Lead as Human. And I wonder when you hear this, what does that mean to you as a leader? Yeah, I think it's really a lot of what we've talked about is just making sure that the ways that organizations, businesses, teams move forward is each individual on that team and knowing them, knowing what drives them. They're knowing what we're trying to accomplish and that we're watching out for them. We're going to help them achieve their ambitions. I think it's just knowing and um, being authentic and transparent with the people you're leading. So I think that's a lot of it. Yeah. And yet I think it can be really challenging to be transparent especially when times are kind of tough. I know I'm not sure how it is in Alabama right now, but out here in California, it's a rough business environment. A lot of organizations are struggling. Their revenues aren't quite what they thought they were going to be. They might be growing, but maybe not fast enough. And so do you have some tip you might share with leaders? How do you help your organization and keep people aligned when the news isn't that great? How transparent should you be? Well, so it's interesting because during the pandemic, we were probably overly transparent because we really talked about how we're in this together and we're uncertain what's going to happen. So we did do across the board kind of, you know, pay deferrals with the hope we could get back. Yeah. And But we were transparent about as we were hitting months and then things were going well. And we ultimately, the last day of the fiscal year, got everyone fully repaid, which was the best part of that year. So there was a lot of transparency. So we have tended to err on the side of transparency. And here's the plan of what we're doing. And so I've, I kind of view that as a lens of, yeah, we may be off a little bit here, but here's what we're doing about it and trying to move forward. And it also dovetails back to what we we're talking about. Those folks who are underperforming, however you define it in your organization, it is taking the important steps to make sure you have the right team on the bus. I think it makes sense what you're talking about. I mean, I can tell that we're actually quite aligned in the way we think about leadership. So tell us about this new organization that you've started. We partner with some nonprofits right now that are trying to eradicate homelessness across our footprint. They're doing some great skill building work, like how to you know, open up a bank account, how to get a driver's license, how to get some job skills, how to dress professionally to get the job. All that's great work. And then as I was talking to leaders, it seemed like there was a level above that just didn't have the bandwidth to cover, which are things like now you've got a job. What about 
conflict resolution, working for a boss, teamwork. How does that work? Showing up every day. So all of that kind of congealed together with this idea of creating a nonprofit called Everybody Leads that's really focused on trying to bring basic leadership teaching and principles in underserved communities um, and doing through leadership modules and trying to really facilitate other nonprofits. So it's very much in the infancy stages. It's like when I have my free time, I'm doing it, but I'm excited. It seems to have been very well received from the organizations I've been talking to and working with already. I'm sure they're super grateful. So if people like me want to get involved with your organization, is there something we can do? Well, stay tuned, I guess. I mean, everybodyleads.org, the website is up. It's got some content, but we're still building out everything. More to come. That's great. So we're getting ready to wrap up. What piece of advice would you want to offer to our listeners if they want to pull their organizations forward and do it through building a more human-centric workplace? What, what's one or two pieces of advice you would offer? I would really look for a resource, whether it's a book or about this, the whole idea of emotional intelligence, because I think that incorporates a lot of the topics that we've been talking about. And so I think just really being focused on thinking about the relationship, thinking about being curious with your colleagues and really just listening and really the important to act on some of those things. So there's all kinds of great resources about emotional intelligence. And I'm sure, Sharon, you might even have some right you know, want to recommend. Daniel Goleman, I think, first helped to popularize it. And if any of you listening don't know, the kind of basic four skills are self-awareness, self-management, meaning making choices about how you behave based on how you're experiencing your own emotions and also on what your goals are. And then there's empathy and building connections with others interpersonally. And then there's the bringing it all together into the interpersonal dynamic where you are able to not just identify and manage your own emotions, but recognize and relate to other people's as you're going about the business of running your business. Somebody wrote a book like back in the early of the 20th century, I think called The Hero's Journey. Joseph Campbell. That's it. There's a lot of books more recently that have taken up some of those ideas from 100 years ago and brought them forward. It's interesting always when I see Joseph Campbell reference, I'm like, oh yeah, I know that. And it really is talking about the heroic journey of leadership and how you can really bring everyone along with you. So um, that may be another thing to, to look for. That's a really good suggestion, too. Well, I think this has been a great conversation. And gosh, I'm so excited to meet you. And I want to learn more about the practices in your firm. So any last thoughts you want to share? No, I just really appreciate all the work you do, Sharon, um, not only with the podcast, but your books. And, and just it's been very helpful to me. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, so a sincere thanks to Tim Lupinacci for this engaging and really wonderful conversation today. I'm pretty sure listeners are going to want to track you down. So how do people find you? Where's the best place to look? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm also, uh, our website of our firm is bakerdonaldson.com, D-O-N-E-L-S-O-N.com. And as I said, everybodyleads.org, I'm over there as well. Super. Well, thanks again for being with us today. And it has been a real pleasure to meet you. Yeah, same here, Sharon. Thanks. Have a great day. Please stay with us for a moment and I'll share some takeaways and some coaching tips to help you uplevel your own leadership starting right away. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you.
So it was a great conversation with Tim and a couple key things that I think characterize his leadership principles and the way he's approached his executive role. I'll just call out for you. The first one is he clearly believes people first. And in fact, what he tells us is that by aligning on purpose and using emotional intelligence skills to build trusting relationships, the business success will flow naturally. Another way to think about it is the way we treat our people is exactly the way they will treat our clients. Our curiosity, respect, and care will translate into delivering great service to our clients, no matter what the business. The second piece from Tim is how important it is for him to have a clear intention and to set that intention from the top, not just around strategic goals, but also around leadership standards. For example, showing you care, getting to know people as individuals and finding out what they care about and what they want to accomplish in their own careers will create the foundation of a trusting relationship. This enables hard conversations when needed, whether it's a top performer who has some bad behaviors that you want to encourage them to contain, or whether there's someone in a role where they just aren't achieving the goals. If you start with the expression of caring, you allow yourself to have a pull no punches conversation an open and frank one that should be able to lead to the best possible outcomes for both company and individual. And what Tim pointed out is that if it's not working well for the company, it's usually not working out too well for that individual also. The third piece, which we all know is true, but I think it really just shone through in this conversation, is decisiveness is not optional. Executives really do struggle to balance caring about the individuals in the organization while simultaneously having absolute commitment to the organization's success. And this creates a powerful polarity, meaning two things that are equally true that have to be held in mind at the same time and don't always fit well together. And yet, as he points out, decisions must be made and often he has to make them and in a timely manner. The tip I have for you this week is about your own decision-making and whether or where you might have become a bottleneck in your organization. So here's what to do. Ask yourself first, what issues have been in process or under study or under investigation for longer than feels appropriate, not just to you, but maybe to others in the organization? Then ask, what information are you waiting for? And how will that information change your ultimate decision? Taking time to figure out whether your decision will differ based on inputs is a very important way to help accelerate decision-making. Ask also, what is the urgency and what are the risks to waiting to decide versus deciding today with incomplete information? Once you've been through these introspective questions, take them to your leadership team and tell them what you're thinking and ask them, am I waiting too long to make this decision? I'm sure they will tell you if you create openness. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead as Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Andrew Chapman assembled the episode. 
Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production is provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you lose track of where the podcast subscription is, just go to the website. You can listen to all the podcast episodes there. If you learned something useful today, take a minute to leave us a starred review. And while you're at it, tell your colleagues about us. The more leaders we can reach, the better for everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on To Lead as Human. Miracy. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it, to me, really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like, for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts, no shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing, and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.